Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd, and this is a show about all things mastering. And this week, I have a guest co-host, the inimitable Lynch Shaw Woo! from the Recording Studio Rockstars podcast. Uh, Lynch, how the devil are you? Dude, I am doing devilishly well, and I'm thrilled to be here on, on your podcast. Excellent. Welcome. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. So I feel like I should give you a proper introduction, but I know that people are really focused on the mastering stuff. And actually, the topic that we've chosen this week, as you know, is mastering for podcasts, which is something that I've had a lot of requests for. Um, and because you are a seasoned podcaster, you seem like the ideal person to have on to talk about it. But just very quickly, uh, give us a, the, the kind of the two-minute summary of who you are, where you are. You run Toybox Studios, right? Yeah, so my studio is uh, it's a, it's a home studio. Uh, I have a house in East Nashville, Tennessee, and I built a home studio in the what used to be a three-car garage. Uh, but I, I did a pretty nice job of it, so it's a full-featured studio where I can track a, a full band. I can mix records. Um, I can attempt to learn how to master records from somebody like yourself and and then try and do it myself here as well. And I have a, a beautiful analog desk, a one-of-a-kind MCI that was custom-built by Jeep Harned for Criteria Studios in 1969. In mm -hmm. fact, it's the same one that used to live at Studio C at Criteria in Miami all through the 70s. Oh, really? And it did Hotel California for the Eagles and did the Bee Gees records, Staying Alive and Saturday Night Fever. Nice. See, I think put, putting a desk like that into a room basically disqualifies it from being called a home studio. <laughs> I mean, well, I, and I look at your room through the, you know, I've seen your videos and, and stuff and I'm thinking, you know, that looks like a real studio to me. I mean, it is a real studio. It's because, I mean, I think the line has become blurred enough these days that it kind of stops being meaningful, doesn't it? Yes, blurred lines, right? That was probably recorded in a home studio. Probably was. So, uh, yeah, um, it, it is, you know, and it's a lot of fun to do it. I don't know if the fact that I actually found the console on eBay qualifies it for being a home studio, once again, brings it back in, in favor. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, it, I built the studio having worked in many different professional studios, so I had every intention of creating it to have the ability to function like a professional studio, but to have the feel of being in a comfortable place that was my home and, and like my my playground down here. That's why it's called the Toy Box. Yeah, it's nice. I, I think I feel the same way about this little place I have here now. And, well, I mean, I, there are more and more people. I mean, Andrew Sheps now has a home studio, doesn't he? I mean, in fact, you listen to uh, Bobby Ozinski's podcast and pretty much every pro mixer he talks to works from home these days they might still go into a big room to to kind of track something or you know if if they have clients who need the or want that that kind of the big studio experience it just makes so much sense to work this way rather than having to go out and book time in a big i mean i, I feel for the people running you know a kind of a major facility because it just must be getting harder and harder for them well i imagine it is i know it's a challenge to run a, a bigger commercial studio um, and it has been, it's probably always been a challenge. And, and certainly the challenge has changed with the music industry and sort of the the changing scope of, of budgets for recording and all that. But I think that there's still real distinctions between commercial places and home studios and that commercial places tend to be, you know, an environment where you could have a lot of people come park their cars and you can have people walking off the streets. You know, you can have a receptionist, you could have uh, a huge space and, and lounges and, and multiple studios and all that kind of stuff. In fact, um, Berry Hill is an area here in Nashville. It's sort of like the second Music Row. Music Row, where um, you know all kinds of famous studios have been and, and, mm. and labels and famous records made, that is basically disappearing before our very eyes right now. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, and but in the wake of that, you know, rewind twenty years, and Barry Hill was growing at that point, and now Barry Hill is sort of the new place. But they actually took all sorts of residences and converted them into studios, and so it's sort of like this, you know, right in the middle kind of thing where it, it, everything looks like houses, but they're all commercial facilities. It's a cool place. I'll have to come and visit sometime. You give me the tour. <laughs> I'd love to, man. It'd be great. Excellent. So also, just quickly to mention, I mean, you run a studio and you do 
Um, the amazing the, the hay bale sessions from the Bonnaroo Festival, right? You just did that? Yes, we just did that. I just, just came back from that. So every year in June, um, I take a crew of guys down to the Bonnaroo Music Festival, which is an hour south of Nashville. And it's a, uh, on a huge, wide-open farm space. So it's just these big fields get converted into camping. And then there are stages all over and tents and all kinds of crazy, trippy-looking you know, funny bobbleheads that are 20 feet tall and things like that. You know, it's, it's a basically a, just a, a really fun and creative music festival with about a hundred thousand people for four days. Cool. Um, that's, that's as big as Glastonbury. Yeah. I, I know that you guys, you know, still have the biggest of the biggest, you know, and South America probably has the really big ones, but, um, for yeah, how many burning man i guess is even bigger is it i think it is and i think that coachella is uh, one of the biggest here in in the u.s as well but what's interesting is that you know a hundred thousand people appear in this little town called of manchester tennessee and then the rest of the year i think the town's you know lucky to have um ten thousand people in it you know mm. yeah it's a, it's the same in glastonbury well i mean glastonbury appears in these fields where the cows are the rest of the year <laughs> exactly yeah, and so you set up a studio that is literally insulated with, as in, has sound insulation of hay bales, mm -hmm. right? Right. So, uh, like you say, we have a studio that we build inside a double-wide trailer, and then to isolate it from all the noise of the festival and, and the main stages, which are only 100 yards away, you know, with the huge subwoofer systems, we actually encapsulate the whole thing in bales of hay, stacks and stacks, um, so that these 100 bales of hay, or hundreds, when you look at it, it looks like a giant stack of hay with two doors coming out of the side. But we'll bring in, we're teamed up with 40 different radio markets across the country. And when a band comes in, they record three songs, and then those songs will get mixed, uh, recorded, mixed, and mastered. And they're turned around within an hour so that the bands uh, are available for all these radio stations and they can be played during the weekend. That's that's amazing. That's insane. Yeah. So our very ridiculous and insane target is about forty bands in four days, and then oh. if we're lucky and we don't have that many booked, you know, we're probably more likely to do thirty. And I've heard them, and they sound great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Well, so one of the things that is so uh, much fun about it, and I think unique, is that I set up the studio, um, or have this is the twelfth year we've done it. I set it up where all the microphones are coming in off the floor. They're coming into an analog console. This year I took down my Soundcraft DC2000. And then I mix in a pair of headphones. I just mix them in real time, live while they're playing. And then the signal goes back to our mastering engineer, Joe Hutchinson, in the back of the, our studio there. And then he captures that analog mix as a two-track capture and then masters from that. So there's a, there's a quality to the sound and a, and a purity to what the mix is and what the instruments sound like that we forget living in a world of let's record all the multi-tracks first and then mix it, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. from all those digital multi-tracks. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I was going to say, I'd love to do something like that, but actually I'm not sure I could handle the pressure. It's, um, it's taken me 12 years to get relaxed about it. <laughs> well, uh, I take off my hat to you. So if people want to hear that, they can go to... Um, I actually, if you just go to thehaybellstudio.com, that'll take you to uh, a page where I, that I have dedicated to that on my, my studio toy box website. So just thehaybellstudio.com will take you right there. Very cool. And then the URL of the studio is thetoyboxstudio.com. I like to put the in front of stuff. Except for the podcast, which is recordingstudiorockstars.com. Is that right? Yeah, it's right. Because finally I got it right after messing up all my other websites. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so the, the podcast I've, I started in this past year, and, and I, you were gracious enough to be one of the guests, uh, early guests on the show. And you were lucky to get me. I was lucky to get you, indeed. <laughs> no, you're not. I'm a tart. I'll go anywhere. Uh, and so the the podcast is called Recording Studio Rockstars, and it's on iTunes. We were very honored to be holding the number one spot in music for a few weeks when we launched. Um, and mm. then I realized very quickly that that's a long URL to type in, so I, I wisely made one called rsrockstars.com. So if you want to go visit the website, just type that in and go listen to many of the different guests we've got on there. 
We're almost at 50 guests, so just about a year. You've had some fantastic guests. Anybody listening to this should definitely head over. And ch- I mean, as well as me, obviously. But yeah, you just got this fantastic lineup. It's uh, highly recommend your show. So let's get on to the topic at hand. Uh, well, actually, let's just take a slight tangent because, I mean, I want to talk about mastering specifically for podcasts because that's what people ask me about. Yeah. But actually, there's not that much to it. I think there are some fairly simple rules that you can follow, and then a lot of it is similar to what people have already heard. The key thing, as far as I'm concerned, is you need to get good input going in. So I'm just springing this on you, yeah. and I apologize for that, but I thought we could bounce off some ideas uh, with each other for getting good vocal sound, you know, in an affordable way. So, because, you know, I mean, everybody knows I'm here in this room that's my converted garage, and but I did spend about just over a thousand pounds on uh, acoustic treatment to, to to kind of get the sound under control and, and a, a nice side effect of that is it works well for voiceover as well yeah and i'm guessing you have a treated room there but there are other affordable ways to improve the sound right so i'm going to kick this off by saying first of all people need a decent mic and that yeah. doesn't have to mean an expensive mic i'm using a uh, what is this a blue yeti it's a hundred pound so 150 dollar usb mic it's a it's a big old thing it's great you can switch it between stereo and cardioid and hypercardioid it's very clean it's very easy to use you just plug it in and go uh the only thing i would say is if anybody's thinking of getting one you need i now have it on a stand it comes with this kind of big old stand that comes with it but that uh, transmits so much vibration through the desk or whatever you sit it on that it's pretty much unusable, mm-hmm. especially if you're going to type on a keyboard while you're doing something. And one of the things about you know using the stand on the desk is, by default, if it's on the desk, that means it's probably a couple of feet away from your voice. Yeah, well, that's so. So before I got the the mic stand, um, I actually I had this kind of interesting um, setup where I had maybe two inches of kind of a kind of layered bubble wrap and foam. Um, mm-hmm. And then the cardboard box for my Abbey Road drinks coasters that my brother gave me for my birthday a couple of years ago. Um, So that would lift it up about four or five inches. And then it was, I could have it kind of, you know, four or five inches from my face and and right in front of my mouth. And then it worked. But it was pretty clumsy. So it's funny, you know, you know, we're surrounded by all this gear, these options. You're like, well, what kind of fancy mic stand do I need? And and, you know, when you look back on the experience of recording, so often it's as simple as, you know, just put it on a box that's yay high that you found in your, you know, your rubbish bin. I'm going to use the word rubbish bin just to sound British, but, you know, something that was on its way out the door well, and then you it. try it out and it, it ends up working great. You know, I've got a, my video camera when I do webinars, for example, is it's balanced on a plastic tub with an unopened pile of um, unused uh, what are they? They're they're like um, Bitcoin company post-it notes that I never used. And then a little mic on a, you know, a, a camera on a stand. And that makes the perfect height for video. I'm so, so relieved you ended up saying Bitcoin posters. You were saying uh, unused and it kind of hung there. And I was like, unused what? Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, um, so my parents had a joke that um, basically wherever they went, they, they had a ball of string in my mom's handbag. Um, and that ball of string was used to repair cars. It was reused to re- repair beds when we were on holiday that kind of fell to pieces, all kinds of stuff. My equivalent for that is just folded up pieces of paper. I can, I've can i used folded up pieces of paper to solve so many problems. You know, I mean, the obvious kind of rocky table, but all kinds of stuff. Anyway. Well, I mean, you know, if you don't have a sonic screwdriver, what you got to come up with something clever. Well, I do now, clearly, but that's, we shouldn't talk about that. Um so, okay, decent mic. That's kind of a no-brainer. In terms of affordable acoustic treatment, uh, well, do you have any suggestions? Well, you know what? Before we even get to that, let's point out the importance of going through all that nonsense we just talked about, getting it up on the box and everything. So, And also talk about cardioid voice versus hypercardioid, mm-hmm. So, because people might not know what that is. Um, the hypercardioid pickup pattern, cardioid is sort of this heart shape where the back of the mic is rejecting what's behind it, and the front of the mic is clearly picking up what's in front of it, which should be your voice, ideally. Um, and hypercardioid means that it's narrowing that that vision of what it's going to listen to in front of it a little bit further, but it also kind of opens up this teeny bit in the back 
And I think hypercardioid does a better job of rejecting the stuff on the sides and, and mm. the rest of the rim in general. But the point is that you want your voice to be close up to where the mic is. It's like imagine taking a, a picture with your cell phone and you see this. Um, you, you ever have that experience where you, you see a beautiful view and then you pull up your cell phone, you try and get a snap of the, the moon or the sun setting. And then you look at it and you're like, it's so far away. I can't even tell what it looks like. <laughs> yep. and, and you sort of realize that, that cell phone pictures, when you used to use Polaroid cameras, they, the pictures to be really good, you really had to like get up close to the subject mm -hmm. and have it fill the viewer. Same thing with the microphone. You want to get up close with your voice so that it's really the only thing the microphone's listening to. Plus, you get a little bit of that proximity effect, which is when hypercardioid and cardioid mics are close to a source, they actually have a low-end bass boost, which gives you that, you know, here, I'm going to blow up my mic here, but gives you that radio DJ sound. Yeah, really good points. And what you need to do is find a perfect balance point between those two. Um, because actually, in my early YouTube videos, I have that close-up radio DJ sound and also lots of pops and thumps because I was just too close to the mic. And that was because I was I was literally just using a spare bedroom to record those. There was no acoustic treatment. The sound in the room wasn't good enough to get it kind of close enough and intimate enough that I was happy with it. I had to go closer than was ideal to the mic. And now, I don't know about you, but I'm about six or eight inches away from the mic. Yeah. I, I, I like to call it the hang 10, right? You put, well, with this mic, I find I'm probably, you know, a coffee cup, a large coffee cup away from the mic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it varies from mic to mic. This mic that I'm using is very sensitive to plosives, to pop sounds. So the other thing that everybody should invest in is some kind of pop shield. Um, I have a really cheap fabric thing, cost about £10. I'm actually thinking I should upgrade to one of the proper, the ones with the, the wire mesh grill, um, mm -hmm. because it's not that effective and you know, I, I should be doing this properly because I'm an audio professional. Um, but, you know, people can use the kind of the silk stocking stretched over a, a coat hanger solution as well. It's something in there. Quite aside from anything else, I think it helps you keep away from the mic, you know, because... It does indeed. You know, especially people have used mics for performing and stuff, and they're used to kind of almost eating the mic. Also, just like right now, the mic is pointed towards me, but it's kind of pointed towards the corner of my mouth so that I'm not directing the airflow right into the mic, I'm sort of missing the front of the mic slightly. Mine is also, it's pointing directly at my mouth, but I'm kind of speaking towards my computer monitor, watching the audio record into my DAW, and the mic is probably over at maybe two o'clock, I would say, um, which is another Ian, thing. Ian, I know that really you're just fawning over that picture of yourself on Skype, and that's why you're looking at the, uh, the computer monitor. Sorry, I, I've just got a bit emotional. It's... <laughs> That's okay. Uh, no, I'll, I'll blank that. Don't don't reveal these things about me, Lidge. It's embarrassing. Um, okay, so we did microphone, mic placement. Very good point. Okay, so so I'll do some stuff on affordable acoustic treatment. I mean, heavy curtains will do a bit. You know, the, the big problem if you're in a room with bare plaster walls is that the stuff just bounces off it, almost like glass. I mean, I was, I think I said in the, the show that in fact, we, I did a whole show on acoustic treatment, so I'm not going to do a massive thing on this. But yeah, when I first came into this room, bare walls, I was just horrified with the way that it sounded. Um, so kind of hit thick, heavy, you know, that kind of maybe felted, quilted material, that kind of curtains or, a, you know, a duvet hung up against a wall or mm -hmm. is it, you don't call it a duvet, do you? What do you call it over there? Uh, uh, tapestry? I don't know. No, I've, you know, the, the kind of fluffy thing that you have over you in, in bed with feathers in it. and Oh, yeah. No, we might call it a duvet or a quilt. A quilt. Okay, yeah. Um, those kind of things can help. If you have lots of plush furniture, that can help. You know, if the room is carpeted, mm -hmm. that can help. If you have lots of books, I really like. There's a, I keep seeing this amazing image of one of the Mix with the Masters studios that they use. It has this beautiful mixing desk in this room. And basically, the acoustic treatment in that room, it looks to me, is books. Mm -hmm. um, and this is only a theory I have. I mentioned it in the, I think, in the, the one I did on acoustic treatment that they're probably pretty good, you know, because they're kind of, they're not completely dense. You know, there's there's air between all of those pages and in between the books themselves. They have varied sizes and densities and masses and stuff. They're kind of randomly distributed. I'm guessing if you have a library, you know, clearly some of my British chums have libraries, <laughs> or if you have an office with a ton of books in it, 
that would be pretty good. One hint that I've heard is for people to go into uh, a closet or a cupboard for us in the UK, um, mm-hmm. you know, because you have all of those clothes hanging up. So you immediately have that kind of that mass of uh, material that is going to very effectively absorb some of the high frequencies, stop things bouncing around and that having that kind of cold, empty uh, kind of sound to it. The disadvantage of that is it's a small kind of boxy space. It's going to be rectangular. It's going to have parallel walls. It's probably going to add some kind of coloration to the sound just because of the sound of the the, the thing it is. So actually, one tip if you're going to try that is you could sit on the floor because one of the worst places to be sonically in any space is equally spaced between any of the walls. If you sit on a chair in a closet there's a good chance your head is about halfway between the floor and the ceiling. So you're kind of doubling up on all of those problems that you have by using the closet in the first place. So if you want to try that, you could just have a little stool or some cushions or something and sit down low. Or maybe you could get a step ladder and go up kind of high, close to the ceiling. I don't know. Anyway. You know, and while you're on that point, uh, remember everybody, uh, this is a reminder when you're sitting and listening to your studio monitors and you're placing your studio monitors in a, in a space... If you find yourself sitting in the middle of your room to listen to your monitors and mix from, you're also going to experience that worst place to uh, to listen in the room. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, you want to be – well, I mean, if, if you are lucky enough to have a room that is a kind of dedicated studio, for monitoring and for recording purposes, you want – your head wants to be about a third away from the end wall, be it the front or the back. And, you know, depending on the – so if you have a square room – you probably want to be closer to the to the back side of the room. Um, if you have a square room, start over. Well, if you have a square <laughs> room, you, yeah, you've got extra challenges. But I, lots of people do. You know, it's it's one of the yeah. most in a, in a modern. If somebody's just kind of converted a spare bedroom or whatever, it's um, they're very practical shaped rooms. They're just not built for sound. Uh, anyway, okay. So anything else you can think of, Lidge? No, uh, just a reminder too. As you bring in all these things, these soft things, one of the um, follies that we run into is a lot of the stuff that we put on walls, soft things all around, it actually mostly just deadens the high frequency. Mm. So it will take some of the reverb out, but you will tone down the clarity of your voice in the space or what the mic is picking up, but it doesn't necessarily tone down the boominess of what's going on in the room. So especially in a closet, you know, the closet amplifies the boom, but all those clothes make it dark. So just just be aware of that and find the balance of all those things. And I guess the last point is, I think a lot of people when they're podcasting, now if you're podcasting from a studio, great, you might already be considering those treatments, but a lot of people are podcasting and they're creating, I don't know, you know, something from an office space. Mm -hmm. And office spaces by default tend to be um, Spartan, bare walls and stuff because that sort of works well for your mindset of you know keeping scattered paperwork off your desk but it's terrible for sound yeah absolutely the other thing i'll just briefly mention it anybody who's really interested it should head back and listen to the episode on acoustic treatment is you can you can build acoustic treatment like the stuff that i have and like i imagine you have uh, yourself you don't have to spend thousands of dollars on buying the stuff in Um, if you're reasonably handy like able to cut some uh, pieces of wood with an angle at each end and make them into a kind of frame shape. Uh, you can build this stuff yourself and much more cost effectively. And one thing I didn't mention in that show that is it's kind of not so relevant for studios in general, but particularly for podcasting, is I think lots of people build a, a little portable studio themselves. So I mean, you can buy... There's a thing called uh, they're they're called reflection filters usually, or and they're kind of yeah. they're often you know square or semicircular, kind of cylinder shaped. You put them on a mic stand and they go behind the mic and then they have foam or some kind of absorbing material inside them. To, and the idea is that you speak into them and they deaden down the sound uh, that comes back to the mic. That's a good tip actually. I mean, you mentioned about hypercardioid patterns getting more reflections from behind the mic. I ex- yeah. experimented with hypercardioid in here, and, and I, I don't use it for that very reason. Um, the because I have acoustic treatment to my to my left and my right and above me, but in front of me there is a wall and there's a window, so actually, a little bit of sound bounces back from that when I'm speaking, and if that goes into the back of the mic, it sounds bad. So that's a reason not to use hypercardioid, and that's the kind of thing that those those filters are meant to help with. 
having said that, I've read some reviews that say they don't do a heck of a lot of good. What you can do is build uh, yourself two kind of small acoustic panels, like the one that I described in the acoustic treatment episode, you know, kind of four inches thick with the uh, the rock wool or the Owens Corning uh, insulation material covered mm-hmm. in fabric. But people build them kind of like a, a bit like a giant book. So if you may, may, maybe make ones kind of two feet by two feet square, you build two of those, put a couple of hinges in the middle, then you could go into an office space and when you want to record, you just kind of get this thing out from the from the cupboard or under the desk or wherever it is, open it out and sit it behind the mic so that you're, you know, it's kind of, it, it's blocking off, I guess, sort of pretty much 45 degrees that you can see in front of you. You're speaking into the corner of it. And then the mic is kind of nestled in there kind of so that you, you've got a triangle shape of these two panels on the mic. That's that's going to be reasonably effective because providing there isn't a wall directly behind you, there's not going to be a huge amount of reflection from behind you because you're speaking into the screen. Uh, the screen thing is going to absorb a lot of the high frequencies and maybe help a little bit with the low end without necessarily over-deadening the sound. And that can be a really good uh, solution. I think real traps actually sell um, kind of a made-up one of those for a few hundred dollars I think they certainly used to. I don't know where they still do. Yeah, that's a great idea. I actually hadn't heard the the sort of hinged book thing suggested before, which is really cool. I guess one of the challenges, of course, is if it's if it's big enough, it's also blocking your view of a screen if you're trying to look at you know a computer and read notes off there, that sort of thing. Um, the way I'm doing this in my space right now, I actually really love using the Mic Tech Procast SST. It's a it's a podcasting mic that's a condenser, but it's on its own boom arm and it's got a heavy weighted bass. It's just a USB, just plugs right into the computer and then everything else is sort of ready to go on it. Um, and then I'm standing and so I've got it kind of, I probably, I am close to one wall, so I'm not right in the middle of the, the uh, control room. I think my control room has a little bit of sound and echo to it, but um, you know, I think the real issue for anybody who's who's trying to get a sound is make sure the the echo isn't uh, overwhelming the clarity of your voice. But if it's not overwhelming your voice and there's a little bit in there, it might not be a problem. You might you might call it that's the character of your space. I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, if people listen carefully, especially when I speak loudly, you can hear a little bit of the room in, in the sound on my voice. And actually, you know, over here, when you listen to the sound of the BBC, um, quite often you can hear that that quality, providing it doesn't sound unpleasant. You know, if it kind of sounds kind of weird and honky or clangy and metallic or you know something about it that's that's nasty then you need to fix it but otherwise yeah. if there's a bit of a room sound you know i think it's all good and i had one final thought going back to mics which is people could always just use a headset mic um you know typically you won't get that kind of nice fruity bass end out of them and you'll probably get quite a lot of mouth noises and breath and if you scratch your beard as i am at the moment it becomes even more distracting um but uh, that can work and that can be a really affordable and and if you use one of those you can pretty much not worry about room sound and all the rest of it because the mic is so close to your mouth that you know the proximity effect pretty much wipes everything else out yeah true so now i just wanted to make one comment you mentioned the bbc and i'm so glad you did because i remember seeing that the bbc they designed guidelines for exactly how to create recording spaces exactly how to treat a vocal booth for a perfect balanced vocal sound so if you do find yourself wanting to build something that's more elaborate um, maybe we can uh, find that link and post it somewhere but i know if you do a little googling you can find the bbc specs for what a vocal booth should look and sound like and be you know the build specs for it it's pretty cool oh, stuff. i haven't seen that yeah no that's yeah we should pull that out and stick it in the show notes if we can find it um yeah great well, and just brief tangent um away from podcasting i mean you know one of the things i think that lots of people don't realize uh these days you know in the kind of the home studio because we're all working in less than ideal rooms uh close miking tends to be the default you know, and it was kind of, it was like the second hint we gave people here on this show. Um, it does work, but you also, when you when you close mic something and you cut out as much of the room sound as possible, you do remove potentially a huge amount of character from the sound. Um, and I have it on good authority that, for example, at Motown 
in the 60s when you were recording a vocal, the mic would be a good six to eight feet away from the performer. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And and I've seen, I mean, I've seen this done, especially with bluegrass um, and stuff. I've seen, you know, an entire band playing around a single mic and they get the relative balance between the instruments by how far away they stand and how loud they play. And it just, you know, it kind of, if it's done well, the sound just leaps out at you. It's just there. And, you know, to go to one of my favorite examples, if you listen to all of the Beatles stuff, a lot of their things, especially if you, because the, the, the stereo mixes, you know, they did that thing of hard panning stuff left and right because they only had center left and right panning on the desks back then. If you kind of take either kill one channel or take one headphone off or whatever so that you suddenly you stop kind of hearing the whole sound picture of the mix and you can kind of focus in on those individual elements. And when you do, very often you'll hear a huge amount of room sound in there, you know, especially when they're recording things like clarinets and French horns and a lot of the kind of the less traditional rocky instruments in the later albums. Sure. The room sound was a huge part of the sound of those records. And, you know, just moving the mic forwards and back to get the perfect balance of that can be a great way to to shape the sound of what you're recording. And especially when you use a mic like the Coles 4038, I mean, that ribbon mic has got so much proximity effect and it's so sensitive that it sounds best when it's back off an instrument, you know? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Now it's, oh, there's so many things that are fun to play with. But I think this is the mastering show. It's probably time that we move on to the mastering aspects of podcasts. So... Lidge, why don't you ask me questions? Uh, what, I mean, I know that I've helped you out with the levels. Okay, now maybe I'll start yep, with the levels. Yep. I'll talk about the levels because I was actually part of an AES panel um, that came up with some recommendations for, well, for online streaming in general, but that includes podcasts. Um, and the the levels that we decided on were between minus 20 and minus 16 LUFS, that's loudness units full scale. Um, right. We've covered loudness units in a load of detail on previous episodes, so anybody who's not sure about that, head back to the themasteringshow.com, have a look through the archives, you'll find plenty of stuff. There's one episode specifically on loudness. Um, peaking, no higher than minus one dB, which fits in with all of the other standards that we know about and has uh, good reasons behind it, as regular listeners will now know. The minus 20 was in there because some of the people on the committee wanted that flexibility to broadcast quieter if they chose to. And I think I'm right in saying that if you listen to the BBC, you'll hear they're a dB or two quieter than minus 16. I think maybe they're around minus 18, minus 20 mark. But minus 16 is the loudest. And that's where uh, these shows have been pitched at. That's what I recommended to you. And I think mm -hmm. the uh, one of the things that I like about that as a level is that chances are, if you record at that level and the the voices that you're recording are reasonably consistent, you know, providing you don't have somebody who suddenly talks really quietly and then somebody who shouts at you all the time, you're not going to need a huge amount of processing. I've only edited two uh, episodes of this show, but both of them that I did, I didn't use any processing on my voice at all. And the loudness and the peak levels, everything fit in really nicely with no compression. Um, maybe I tweaked the level manually in a couple of places where I was just kind of listening back and thinking, you know, I'd kind of the energy had ebbed a little bit or I'd got a little bit overexcited just to kind of rein that in. But, you know, so if you don't need the compression for creative purposes to get the vocal sound that you're looking for, which you might if you're going for a more kind of produced radio sound. Um, yeah, I think that's a great place to be. So how are those levels working out for you? Uh, well, the levels are fantastic. So I'll back up a little bit and describe how I arrived at the sound that I'm using for the for recording Studio Rockstars right now. Mm -hmm. um, I described the mic that I'm using right now. This, this uh, is actually a condenser mic. It's a little condenser mic. And uh, I use this one for a Skype interview like this because it actually interfaces with Skype seamlessly. If I'm doing a raw recording and I'm just recording directly into my DAW, my DAW, like I'll use Pro Tools often, I actually use a dynamic mic. So I have a pair of MicTech PM9s and I use dynamic mics for that. Mm -hmm. So a little different sound, but I still use the same process of mixing for either one. I just find that my settings might vary. And what I've arrived at is I'm using a number of tools that 
are available to us now that may not have been available in the past. But the very first thing I'll always do is I'll put an EQ on there, maybe just a low cut. And I'll just use the simple, just the built-in, um, you know, one band EQ plugin for for Pro Tools. And I'll sort of cut things at 100 hertz. And, and I might move that around a little bit depending on how it sounds to me. That helps just kind of keep the plosives out if mm-hmm. there are any. Yep. Um, and then the next on my chain, I actually use the... Um, the dialogue denoiser plugin. Oh yeah. And it's fantastic. So good. And what it does is that I've noticed, you know, I can do a little bit or sometimes if I do have a lot of noise, uh, you know, with a Skype interview, for example, Skype will send over noise on that track. And so you might need to gate it out. And I just got a little handheld recorder, the Tascam DR40. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes my portability much easier. However, it turns out that the mic pre's on it are terribly noisy with dynamic mics. Mm. I, I had no idea. Um, but I'll use the, the denoiser plugin to just kind of tighten up and clean up that tr- the tracks as the first thing. And that really makes a big difference. It can take something that might sound um, like... Uh, it's like it's got too much junk going on and it just tightens it up and gives it that, you know, helps give it that quality of sounding like you did it in a, a professional vocal booth. Mm-hmm. So that, so that's one tip. It's not an inexpensive tip. That is a, you know, that's a little bit pricier plugin that you go, want to invest in when you're ready to. Yeah. I, th- um, I think uh, Steve was using the, there's a waves. Uh, is it the DNS one? Is that a plugin that waves make? It might be, yeah. I I know I've used the Waves denoise stuff in the past. Um, yeah, because X, X crackle and X noise and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I have Isotope as well. So if I specifically need to clean up noise, I can use that. I think uh, two episodes back, John had some problems with headphone spill at my end on one of these shows. So he used a gate just to, or maybe possibly an expander, just to to kind of quieten that down. For me personally, I mean, if people listen carefully, there's a little bit of um, fan noise in the background of my vocal sound. Um, you bring, you've got your own fans in the control room. They just cheer for you all day long. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, I, I you know, I just pay them a small amount. They're, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, because I have the, you know, the the CPU of my computer is just sitting next to me. It doesn't bother me too much, especially when it's kind of steady state noise. I think people tune it out pretty fast. Um, And because I've got the mic position set up well and I'm sitting fairly close to the mic, for me personally, it doesn't seem like a huge problem. Um, But yeah. I'm not even noticing it on on this end right now during the interview. I don't really hear it. No. Skype is pretty good, actually, I think, at kind of blanking out the stuff in between. Um, And, you know, when, when somebody's speaking, a lot of that background noise is going to be masked. Um, one challenge that I do sometimes have when I'm recording, uh, videos and tutorials and stuff is they're kind of good problems to have. Sometimes the lawn mowers for the cricket pitch outside can get a bit noisy because I don't have like isolation in this room. You know, it's, there's a big window in front of me and it's, it's not a double glass window or anything. So that sound comes through bird song. Sometimes I get a really noisy bird that will sit out there and sing its heart out. Um, (laughs) and, uh, but, you know, like I say, those are good problems to have because I live in the country and I love that. Um, I know of one podcast where the guy records and he lives in downtown New York. So every so often, well, kind of two or three times an episode, you have a, there's a siren in the distance. Yeah. For me, I find that really distracting. That kind of takes me, it distracts me from what the person is saying and it takes me out of the, I know that he leaves it in because A, there's nothing he can do about it because he's in a rented apartment and B, it does kind of add flavor to the, you know, he's quite open about where he records it and, and why those sounds are there. And it adds a certain character to it. But yeah, everybody's going to have to find their own kind of threshold for what they do or don't find distracting. One thing I would say is people shouldn't leap for that stuff first. You know, if you, let's say somebody had the same problem that you did, they they do their first test recording and discover that they actually, there's more noise than they expected, you know, impedance mismatch between the mic and the recorder or the mic pre's or the the converters are not as great as they would like or, or maybe there's just uh i don't know maybe there's air conditioning running somewhere else in the building that you're in that actually you kind of don't notice yourself when you're kicking around and then you record it you know microphones have this funny effect of putting this like 
microscope on sound often and you, yeah. you hear stuff yeah. that you never would have noticed in, in kind of everyday life. Try and fix those problems at the source. It's the same as if you're recording music or whatever. You know, if you can improve the gain structure so that you don't have that hiss in there, or if you can get an external mic pre or a different converter for your computer so that you can eliminate that aspect of it, or if you can move the mic to get, you know, a better effect, do all of those things first. But yeah, absolutely. If you then have a problem like a little bit of headphone spill or whatever it might be, I say go for it, you know, you'll chop it out. I mean, it's interesting you make the point about Skype. Lots of people record interviews as we're doing this one over Skype. And it's surprising, the interview that I did with uh, Matt Colton a couple of shows ago, who's a mastering engineer who mastered the James Blake album, he was talking to me on a handset, you know, just on a, on a mobile, well, it might have been his home phone, actually, I don't know, anyway, a, a telephone handset, and that was coming to me through Skype, and so he had no way to record the audio at his end, so that's what I had to do. So I had to go through and edit his vocal track by hand there to clean it up, and even though all it was kind of doing with this kind of sound, the difference, you know, the improvement in clarity and that, that you could achieve just by cutting those bits out, it was well worth doing the work, even though it took me a bit longer. Um, so, yeah, I do think it's something for people to think about. And there's another, like you say, it's another good tip. Well, so I would continue to comment a little bit that one of the things that I use that has a gate built in, and I use it all the time, is Waves our Vox, the Renaissance Vox plugin. Oh, yeah. It's a it's so useful. I use it when I'm mixing music. I use it for the podcast voices and audio, and it's it's a simple simple plugin. It has a gate threshold which you can just bring up to, uh, and it's a very gentle gate, so it really doesn't chop the voice. It just sort of rolls it in and out, mm -hmm. and it'll just just take out the noise in between. Um, and then it's got another threshold that you bring down and it's sort of like a, a compressor limiter with some built-in EQ, I think. And it, it just sort of brings out some harmonics and clarity in the voice, but it also raises the level. So so I'll use that and that's really helpful and that's great for gating between the denoiser and the, the RVox. Um, but I did do a podcast episode with uh, somebody and there was a... there there control room space we were in actually had some uh, plumbing that was going through the ceiling. Okay. And so every time somebody used the bathroom, <laughs> you'd hear this toilet flushing through. And, you know, most of the time, I think when they're working, they just block that out. And it happens occasionally, but not all the time. But on the podcast, it was like, you know, the, like you said, the mics are highlighting that it was like <laughs> happening. And so what's funny you is that actually like here, there wasn't any kind of resonance from, you know, from the bowl. No, 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 no. I'm just kind of having visions of somebody walking in there with a tie clip mic on, you know, forgetting to turn yeah. it off. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, that wasn't quite that bad. But clearly, you, when we were recording the episode, because we interviewed live in the space, it, it, you, it was clear that the toilet water was flushing through the pipes. And so we commented on it. We joked about it. And, you know, of course, that sort of, you know, a little levity takes care of most problems anyway. Mm -hmm. But what happened was when I was mixing it, by default, I was still using a lot of the same gating things. And one thing to watch out for is actually when you're so capable at taking care of and removing the problem that the jokes you make about the problem live on the podcast, when you listen to it, you don't hear the problem. And so you don't know what they're joking about. So that <laughs> that's a, sort of the flip side to that. Uh, that's cool. I, don't, I don't, haven't heard that. That's, Yeah. Toilet pipes going through a control room. That's a little bit of a design flaw there. As you can imagine, we know a lot of people making great records that are very creative about the use, the space that they make records in. Well, so that might. But, but also, to be completely serious about it, I think something that lots of people, you know, we idolize all of these recording studios from the past, you know, because of all the great albums that were made there. But the truth is that so many of these legendary recording spaces weren't built, custom built as studios. They're just rooms in buildings that have been adapted over the years. So actually, I think that kind of stuff is more common than people realize. Um, and I've heard, Definitely. you know, bespoke, uh, you know, acoustic architect designed rooms that don't sound anywhere near as great as somebody recording in their front room. I think I think that whole thing of kind of taking what you have and making it work is a huge feature of the music industry just throughout, not just for people, you know, kind of having to be creative with home studios or whatever. Yeah. Well, so, um, yeah, just, you know, Motown, for example, was was a, 
a photography studio that I think was, I think maybe was built in a garage space. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, so, so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just kind of keep moving forward through the mix stuff. So I don't, you know, keep people up for the next eight hours listening to, <laughs> to me talk on this podcast, but you know, after the RVox plugin, I really like to use um, the actually the CLA. This is another Waves plugin, the the Chris Lord Algae Signature Series Vocal plugin, and I've arrived at all these choices just through trial and error and trying different things until I found things that really seem to work well. And one thing that's cool about this plugin, now it's designed to um, be for mixing music. So you have an input level, you have a low end fader you can boost or cut low end and you can choose three different frequencies um, you can boost or cut the the top end and again you can choose three different frequencies then there's a compression fader that has three different compression settings and then it and then it's got you know effects it's got delay and reverb and i just turn all those off because i'm not using those mm. but what's great about it is it is it gives it that kind of uh extra bit of a little bit of a compression and harmonic excitement it sort of excites the vocal mm -hmm. and and simplifying it to where all i have to do is decide do i just boost more high end or less high end more low end less low end is is nice because you know you can take days if you're trying to use a you know an infinite band eq and decide how many different frequencies you want to mess with it's it's interesting because is that the end of your chain then are you then done well, I also put in a de-esser, and I'm trying to remember. I'm not looking at my session right now, so I don't remember if I put my de-esser after that final one or if I put it before. Um, but I've got it in there just to make sure I can catch the S's if they get to be too much. But the point is, as you can imagine, I've just described I've got the RVox, and then I've got this you know, CLA vocal plugin. I've got a lot of power under the hood right now to really boost this the, the voice if I want to. And that's where I think it takes us to the next part of the equation, which is why I came to you earlier and we discussed, had this discussion, which is like, where do I take this thing? I've got a, I have a rocket ship in my hands. Where, where do I fly this to? You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the answer is quite simple. I think, you know, I mean, in terms of just like everything else I've talked about in the show, you need a balanced EQ, which, you know, you can achieve with the mic placement and all the rest of it. And then maybe some, some processing as you've been describing. Um, and then it's about the levels I mean, so just to give a uh, a kind of an alternative chain for everybody listening, Lidge has just described his chain that he's using for his vocal sound, um, which is, I guess, not what you're hearing now, right? Because we're doing a Skype nope. interview and then John is going to uh, mix and edit this and I I don't know what he's using right now. Um, but for And, and when, when your mix sounds better than mine, then I'll quickly switch all of my plug-in settings. Well, okay, so my chain for uh, – which shows did I did? Okay, so for the Matt Colton episode, uh, my chain was this mic and nothing else. So literally it was the audio from the mic recorded into my DAW, tweaked the levels. There's a limiter in there just to catch any peaks, just to make sure there's no clipping distortion. If I get a little bit excited at any particular point, uh, job done. Now – it would be kind of interesting to hear from the from people listening whether you guys hear any difference, whether you notice any difference. I'm like I say, I think John was using a gate in the last one. I don't know whether he was using any compression. I know Steve used the stock compressor that comes with Studio One um, to add a little bit of compression when he was editing and quotes mixing the show. I don't know whether he had any other processing in there, but I, so I'm a big fan of minimalism and I think it would be fascinating to hear a comparison with your vocal chain with and without all that processing. I and mean, how hard, for example, are you hitting the the compressor in the in the CLA vocal plugin? Does it give you any information about that? Do you Um I, I it does the the CLA doesn't give me an indication of what's going on. I have to trust my ear on that one. But the Rvox does. It'll show compression. And I've found, you know, I think initially I was trying to figure out how to make it sound loud and, and loud enough, you know, and, and get, you know, just make it sort of leap out of the speakers. I wanted it to sound great. I also have always been a little bit mystified by that, you know, radio DJ sound. And, and I still am try in pursuit of that when I can just to, just to find it. You know, there's a, there is a sound with that huge over the top, 
you know, uh, monster truck re- rally kind of <laughs> sound that is just you know, like it doesn't it's not just a mic straight in. And, and I'm always wondering how they get that. So I think there are a lot of different ways. And I think you one of the best ways is to begin with somebody whose voice sounds like that already. Uh, that's definitely part of the secret. I think yeah. that's certainly part of the secret. For, I mean, you know, again, the BBC here in the UK, uh, I was on a Radio 4 podcast years ago talking about Death Magnetic, and I've forgotten the name of the the presenter who interviewed me, but um, I got a ton of emails from people saying, who is that guy? That's such an amazing voice. Um, and I'm pretty sure he was... It's like, have you ever heard Macy Gray being interviewed? Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I have. I mean, she just... I, I listened to her and I think she must have a built-in compressor EQ and all the rest of it. Cause she just, her voice, I mean, you know, just even in any, just a bog standard microphone in front of her and she just sounds amazing. And it just sounds like she does on the record. So yeah, going right back to the source you need, but not all of us are blessed with having those kind of voices. So it's the same as everything else. It's what sounds right is right. Use what you have. I would always urge people to be, to err on the side of caution. I would say, start with nothing and see how you go because i think there is all as as with all of these things there's a risk that you kind of you have one plugin that does one thing and then you have another plugin that kind of edges it back the other way and then you have another plugin that kind of and you end up kind of getting somewhere similar to where you started out but just with a ton of processing in the middle and you could actually cut a load of that out I'm not saying that's the case with you but it's i think it's a it's a pitfall to watch out well, for if there's anything that you can do that's wrong trust me i've done it but, you know, one thing I would point out about the plugin chains is that uh, I think an, a real indicator that you're going too far is that, um, you know, you work so hard to get right on the mic and treat your space. And then if you start squashing it, a real indication that you're over compressing is you start to hear the room creep up into your sound, you know, more than you want. Mm-hmm. So that that's something that I sort of had to go to the edge, you know, leap off the edge and then climb back up the cliff and get back on again was, uh, you know, over compressing my podcast at first. I think if you went and listened to early episodes, you'd hear that they're probably my early episodes are in some ways louder than later episodes, but only in sort of a squashed way. I probably did it to yours, Ian. Sorry about that, man. <laughs> if I, I don't remember noticing it. If you did, then I forgive you. So I've told you what the, the recommendation is, um, and I look forward to a future where everybody adopts that and all podcasts um, and online streaming formats are at a similar loudness so that we have that consistency and the artistic freedom to make things sound the way that we want them to do. That's not how it is right now. You know, the podcast I listen to, the levels leap up all over the yeah. place. Um, it's, there are so many horrible sounding podcasts out there. I hate to say it. It's absolutely true. And there are some of them that are much louder and there are some of them that are much quieter. And, you know, so the, the, I think the nice thing about the, the minus 16 standard um, is, like I say, if you want to go minimalist, you can. And you probably, probably all you need is a little limiter in there to catch it. Um, and maybe some manual level tweaks, like I said, a little bit of gentle EQ. If you want to go for a much more produced kind of AOR radio sound, you can do that as well. Um, and yeah, you have the, the creative freedom to do that. So I think we've covered pretty much everything I want to do. The one other thing I was going to say is I know that you were asking me about meters for for getting those levels right. And I mentioned yes. that people can use a loudness meter, an LUFS meter. Are you using a loudness meter now? Or I, I think you might be using the VUMT. Is that right? I'm so glad you asked me about that because I, I didn't describe the very end of my chain, which is going to bring it all perfectly home here on my mastering fader on my master fader excuse me on the on the master bus the very last things that i put on there are the um the meter plugs dynameter that's the ian shepherd signature model and then the Klanghelm vu oh gosh what is that vumped the vumped yeah the vumped and those are both those both come directly from you and i they've really transformed my ability to set levels properly for the podcast and finally arrive at something that I that I know is right and I know I can trust and I can be confident that there's a you know consistency to the quality. So so the way that I use the dynameter and the vumped is uh, I believe I set the dynameter for the 12 as my target 
um, which is the the range between my my RMS VU level and the peak level, mm-hmm. and that always sounds great to me for the podcast. And then I set the vumped meter, which is my VU meters. I'll sort of lock that into target plug-in mode so that it's always sitting at the bottom of my screen, and I and I just put it in the mono mono mode um, so that I see just the one meter, and I'll set that to minus sixteen. So that basically means. As I understand it, that my operating level for a zero VU is uh, 16 decibels below full-scale loudness. Yep, correct. And, be- and because the, the the VU meter and the RMS meter and the loudness meters, if you have a balanced EQ, are all going to give broadly similar levels, you're effectively using that as though it was a loudness meter aiming for minus 16 LUFS, which is you know, what I'm, what, what the standard recommends. Yeah, exactly. And the beauty of it is when I was, uh, you know, I got that recommendation from you as the standard. And once I adopted it, my podcast sounded great. I felt good about the way it sounded before, but it was much more like, you know, trying to sail the seas on a windy day without a rudder. I just, I didn't know where to stop when I was trying to make something sound right or sound loud enough. And I'm often working, you know, if you're doing a podcast, you might be in the studio doing some of it, but often you might be in your earbuds or on a pair of headphones or off your laptop or listening to the laptop speakers at different times. And so it can be disorienting, you know, trying to know where your sweet spot is. Um, and one of the things that I set out to do with my podcast, you know, one of the things that I felt was, uh, you know, like a benchmark for me was I wanted to be able to take an iPhone, listen to the podcast put it on speaker mode, set it down in the kitchen while I'm cooking and be able to hear all the voices on the podcast episode. And that's one of the things that really drives me crazy about other podcasts that when they're not mixed well is you you struggle to hear what's being said. And so um, one of the challenges with knowing how loud to mix your podcast so that you can arrive at something that sounds great out of the speaker is uh, is wondering, well, well, how loud does it need to be to hit that? And so if you mix something down at minus 16, you're well within the headroom of what it's going to slam all the way up to be at its loudest coming out of that speaker. So to me, that was eye-opening. Once I, once I actually lowered my level and hit the sweet spot of minus 16, it's, everything started sounding really clear and full coming out of the iPhone speaker. So I don't know if anybody else uses that for a judgment, for, but for me and voices, I thought it was it was relevant. I, I definitely use uh, my, it's an iPod, but same thing, um, to, as a kind of reality check, a sanity check, um, you know, uh, quite aside from anything else, I just listen to another podcast and then flick straight over to mine. I mean, I don't worry about it these days because I know that it works, but back in the early days, um, just to make sure that we were in the right ballpark, and yeah, it worked absolutely well. And I mean, that was a big debate. I mean, it, you know, it, there are other aspects to the recommendations for streaming loudness and the, the, the loudness level and the peak level are the kind of the key ones. There's a huge amount of discussion went into deciding what that level should be. And the, the kind of the reason we settled on it was we knew that people were going to want to go as loud as possible. We didn't want to suggest that people go too loud so that everything gets overly processed and that people who are choosing to broadcast at a lower level, you know, kind of suffer in comparison. Um, but it, it really does work well. I think, I mean, minus 16 is also coincidentally the level that Apple chose for sound check um, in iTunes, the, you know, they're kind mm. of the, the system that evens out the levels. And I think it's a good compromise between, because the broadcast standard is minus 23, right? On, on radio and TV, minus 23 is the level. And that's sufficient to cope with say a feature film soundtrack where you've got stuff that's much louder you know kind of explosions and uh you know spaceships landing and kind of all the rest of it so it needs that extra amount of headroom you don't need that for for spoken word you certainly don't need it for pop and rock music these days although some people would like it that's a whole other story Mm -hmm. um so so yeah kind of and the other important factor is that in the in europe there is a legal limit set on the maximum output level of portable media players. You don't have it in the US. So um, if we specified a level that was too low, like say minus 23, because um, there's no problem with having extra headroom, you know, if, 
that's all good. But the, the, the issue with that would be that in that case, some people wouldn't be able to get the loudness up high enough to hear things clearly in a wide range of environments mm-hmm. um, because of those legal restrictions. You know, there's hopes that those restrictions are going to be improved and become more intelligent as time goes on. But right now we have to take that into account. So that's kind of the reasoning behind choosing those levels. And and yeah, the the nice thing is, so there's another interesting little tidbit here, which is if people are trying to balance music with speech, um, if you master speech and music to the same technical loudness, we will actually perceive speech as being that much louder about it's it's roughly three dbs so if you master music and then master speech on the meters and just stick them next to each other without doing anything else the speech will tend to sound about three dbs too loud interestingly enough yeah so what you actually want to do is if you're you know mixing a, a program that includes both is to kind of bear that in mind i mean you can use your ears and you'll be fine but what you'll tend to discover is that the music will be three or four dBs louder. Now, if you think about this, the standard that we've chosen for speech, minus 16, if the music is three dBs above that, call it four to make the maths easier, that's kind of around about minus 12 LUFS. And minus 12 LUFS integrated is exactly where I recommend people aim as a ballpark when they're mastering music. So the upshot of that is, if you follow these recommendations you could just bolt together the speech and the music and not have to do any other processing and they're going to work really well next to each other. So I keep coming back to this theme. I mean, you used the phrase sweet spot and that that's genuinely what I think it is. When, And it's one of the first things that I teach on the Home Mastering Masterclass course and one of the things that people's, you know, exactly the same thing. It's such a simple thing to say to people, here is what I recommend as a level, stick with it. Because as soon as you know what your level is on the meters... You adjust your monitors so they sound right. And suddenly, like you say, you just take a huge amount of uncertainty out of the equation. You know, it's you know where you're supposed to be and then you just make everything else sound good in that framework. And a whole load of stuff that otherwise you could struggle with, go round and round in circles, just kind of falls into place naturally. Well, it's such a game changer, too, because to have to go through and search through everything and and ask you know judge whether it's loud enough here there everywhere else all the time it's it's hugely time consuming too yeah exactly whereas if you if you know what your reference point is you just aim for it and then it's just a case of tweaking you know you can tweak for because like i say somebody suddenly speaks a little bit quieter or the music is louder than you expect or whatever or you could tweak for artistic reasons um you know i I want a more compressed sound or you know i want things to be a little bit more intense here or whatever you set aside all that agonizing over technical details and just get on with the stuff that we love which is the creative stuff um and that's made me realize that i should have a mastering maxim for this week's show and i haven't decided one in advance so i'm just gonna stick with that which is aim for minus 16 lufs and forget about it you know stop worrying about loudness that's the slogan of dynamite it's not dynamite is not that relevant to podcasts but you know stop worrying about loudness focus on the dynamics and i think that's what it's all about and it's great to hear that you know it's it's helped you and it's funny because it you you kept coming back to me and asking where should the loudness be what should the thing and part of me was feeling like it's not that difficult and then i realized that it wasn't that difficult for me but that's because i knew where i was aiming at and as soon as i told you where to aim at suddenly it wasn't that difficult for you either um right right exactly but without knowing where to aim at then you just keep turning it up louder and louder and louder. And, you know, you turn your speakers down, then you turn it up louder and louder and louder. And you're like, I'm going in circles here. Exactly. There you go. So, yeah, it's 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 great to hear that, you know, that works in a real world environment. And, you know, for you guys listening, it's going to work for you as well. So I'm going to add to your your mastering maximum for pod, podcasting this week. Well, I'm not sure I'm if I'm say, going to allow you. No, I'm joking. Go ahead. <laughs> it's just, a, just an addition, uh, uh, um, an addendum. But uh, stop listening and start looking. Which is kind of paradoxical, right? Because we so often hear mix with your ears, not your eyes. But yeah, I, I, you know, I, I also pick up some flack from people because I'm, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff where I'm talking about meters. Yeah. And, you know, people keep kind of coming back at me with this kind of, if it sounds right, it is right. And it's kind of, yes, but I think in order to get to the place where you can make it sound right, you have to have some kind of 
frame of reference. You know, you have to have some kind of starting point. So, you know, I would never recommend that to somebody that the they do something they feel is wrong just because a meter tells them that. But in terms of just kind of getting started and getting in the right ballpark, it's it's absolutely invaluable, especially and just for training your ears as well. So, yeah. Yep. And Trust your ears for the creative, but maybe when you can use a tool, you know, visual tool for just having a benchmark point to, to know where your center is, yeah. use it for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can definitely agree with that. Well, Lidge, thank you so much. Um, I think there's a ton of stuff in there. Everybody listening, head over to recordingstudiorockstars.com. Check out the podcast. Uh, go and look at all Lidge's other sites. He's a great guy. He's putting out a load of helpful content for all of you, as you can tell from the information he's been giving in this show. This week's episode was mixed and edited by John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Check out that. It's a fantastic resource site for Reaper users. And our theme music is by Kaylee Law. Don't forget to go to themasteringshow.com. Sign up for the email list there. Find me on Twitter or Facebook. And let us know if you have any follow-up questions. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure to be hanging out with you again. And uh, thank you to all your listeners for joining us. Thank you, Lidge. Okay, everybody, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.